Female Magazine and Virus Comics. So, uh, please know most of the gentlemen, um, gentle folks to my right, uh, center stage. I'm going to start from your left to right, just introduce everyone. And if you don't mind, I'll name the books that um, that you're publishing with Heavy Metal, or would you grab my school? No, you can name and shame. That is quite all right. Yes. I also made them finish some of the titles. Let's see how well they this. Uh, far left, GMB Chibuchet, who anyone who's a fan of comic books that challenge uh, ordinary conventions. Well, you should know all four of these individuals up here, but Gregory Nietzsche-Nietzsche uh, is on the left. Um, next to him is uh, the letter, uh, Lyndon Radchenka, and also around the uh, genre challenger, good person. Jonathan Ball, who I've never met, is uh, <laughs> yeah. right of center, and the three of them together worked on uh, the virus imprint book, The Eye Collector. Which has the most terrifying monster I've seen uh, in comics to date. That's a trip to home. Uh, it's, um, yeah, just be warned. Uh, to the right of that is Ken Jansen. Uh, Ken Jansen is right. Uh, I'm not plural. plural. Um, Hindsight is the name of his book, Through Heavy Metal, The Virus in Print. Um, and just a round of applause from a number of people here who've outnumbered David A. Robertson's panels. So yes. First of all, now that's on the record. So I think the best place to start is start. Yeah, I called for it. I should wait. <laughs> my uh, removing moderator from my LinkedIn profile. As soon as it's um, can I, I just, I want to start for whoever the four of you is best to address this, and you can all take it, but um, I'm sure most people have heard of virus, but how it started, when it started, obviously it's COVID related, if you can tell me anything, but uh, give us a few quick words about what that imprint is, and um, and how you came to be involved in, in, in the submission process. Sure, I can speak to that, I think. Um, Virus was an initiative by Heavy Metal Magazine to invite creator-owned projects under the umbrella of Heavy Metal. So they were encouraging creative teams to bring books to them and that they would help them reach a broader, wider audience. You know, in brief, that's it. It's different from a typical uh, deal with Heavy Metal where they may uh, bring on a work-for-hire group. In this case, the creators retain control of their rights and work with heavy metal to then expand uh, those projects into a broader audience. And uh, I couldn't be happier to find a home like heavy metal for the eye collector, which frankly, it's probably the only home that you could find for a book this bizarre. Yeah, heavy metal's got that uh, track record, right? Of, of, yeah, being home to the bizarre, being home to things that challenge and disturb. And, uh, yeah, I mean, when I first heard the news and knowing who was involved, I was pretty thrilled for, for everyone here. Now, what was the, um, uh, did they just open up that submission process and what if, how many books is, is Virus publishing at the moment before we? Uh, that I'm not sure, we couldn't speak to that, but I can tell you this, that Jonathan and I had set out to make the eye collector. We had a conversation at one point to say, let's make the least commercial book we can make. Let's make it as strange and Byzantine as we can. Let's layer it with imagery and poetry and all of these other things that we love. And let's just make a thing we love because the world is literally falling apart around 
around us. And if this is our last kick at a creative can, let it be something that we've decided to do our way. And then uh, when the call for submission came up from Heavy Metal, we just threw our threw ourselves on the pyre and uh, got pulled out for that. Yeah, I think, Ken, didn't your, your book was out before ours? So yeah, mine, mine was a little different. I had already uh, released the first issue or two on Comixology, and then uh, either they saw it or I submitted to them. There was no open submit call when I did it. Uh, they, I just submitted to them because I liked their work, and I was hoping that they'd like it too. And then out of nowhere, they uh, called me up and asked to have a meeting, and uh, the meeting was about, I thought it was going to be a meeting about uh, what I could do for them to, to maybe get this made. And they said, okay, we're going to start publishing it this day. What? What? Let me catch up here. So if anyone's keeping track as to like who's ahead, right? We asked Heavy Metal, but Heavy Metal asked Ken. So I got a point to the board. All right. So there's a yeah, right. there's, there's a, a point on yeah on Ken's tally far exceeding ours, yeah. right? But uh, yeah, so I was unexpectedly very pleased about that, and then uh, um, I had to get a different uh, artist though, because the artist I had the first two issues. Left and I don't I don't think I ever found him again. He was in Croatia or something like that. So uh, I uh, got my longtime uh, art collaborator Matt Martin, who's from Britain, and they and then started making something there. One thing I found kind of interesting about Heavy Metals uh, working with them is, so we had, yeah, Gregory, I guess they had just opened up Virus to like a wider world of submissions, and Gregory had noticed this and sent it to me, and so we, we, we pitched it out to them, I sent them what we had at that time, we just had six pages and a kind of outline of it. Uh, but um, then we, you know, we got, I got an email like, oh, you know, let's have a meeting, you know, and I was like, okay, let's check it out. We booked this meeting, and as the meeting's kind of approaching, I'm looking at it closely. I'm like, Gregory, is this CEO of Heavy Metal meeting with us? Yeah. <laughs> and it's the CEO. And so and the way like, he explained the story was it had sort of been passed over. Our book had been passed over by the editorial already, mm-hmm. and because the world was closed, he was looking at the slush pile, looking at the submissions, and then said, wait, no. This is the most heavy metal book there is. I'm gonna get in touch with these guys myself. And so um, we had this feeling of like being taken to the principal's office for a moment. Right. You were like, why? Are you yeah. going to sue us? Like, yeah. Like, the CEO be meeting with us. Yeah. Know, but he was just a big fan of it. He, yeah, he had kind of dug it out of their pile and was just, you know, uh, enthused about it. And, you know, right from then, we, 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 we really have been um, surprised, uh, honestly, with a, you know, I mean, they're still an indie company, so maybe it shouldn't surprise us. But you think heavy metal, you think back to like, you know, they've been around since the 70s, the 80s. They've had movies, you know, they got, they're a big operation even though they're an indie press, um, you know, you don't expect to be hanging out with a CEO every time you have a meeting. <laughs> you know, I, I, at some point I'm like, are we ever going to meet anyone who's not the CEO? <laughs> yeah. Now we expect it. So if there are other publishers here, we only take meetings with yeah, people right. right on the board. That's it. What a humble brag. <laughs> it's yeah. interesting. I, you know, I, I was like, but it just, I think it really went to show like how enthusiastic uh, they seem to be as a publisher about things they like. Like they just put this book called Bio Ripple recently, which is a very weird uh, and unusual but fascinating book. And uh, we, we were talking to him recently. He was saying it was a similar thing where he kind of like, you know, found this person out of nowhere and uh, decided to throw a bunch of support behind him. And I would like to take this moment, if you don't mind, Donovan, for me to throw some praise on Linden. So a big thing, people ask a lot, like, how do you submit? How do you get your work together? How do you put the package together? Whatever. The essential element to a good comic submission um, that is often 
forgotten. You know, they say accidents happen like just a kilometer from home kind of thing. <laughs> People will think like, okay, well, I got the art together. Oh, I did the script. Okay, we got the layouts are all done. We're going to just quickly letter this book and send it in. And that is where the crashes happen, right? Um, in order for a book to be read, to be understood, it has to be concisely presented. And that is the letterer's job. So, Lyndon, um, I really am sorry because uh, I didn't leave much room for you. And uh, uh, Jonathan is constantly asking you to read letter pages because we're the worst. So why don't you speak to that? Well, no, it's not that you're asking me to read letter pages. It's that every time I send in pages, the, re the instructions I get back are, this is great, but make it weirder next time. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so then when I go back, I have to figure out what I can do that makes that sort of goes against the grain of the house style of um, the mainstream publishers, but will still abide by the essential rules of comic lettering, which is to make sure that the story is being told without anyone realizing that you're doing it. Uh, so thankfully, you actually leave me lots of room now. Jonathan does not, um, he's not very verbose in his scripts. So there's lots of different ways that I can experiment with um, presentation and word balloons and captions and uh, it's a great way to push myself as a as a creative in that space because it's not just I can't I can't copy paste the same sort of style <laughs> right. issue to issue because everything changes so much Wow. Uh, Ken, uh, just in terms of other creators on your book, we have a team of three over here, are we uh, is are you lettering and doing everything by yourself then? Uh, I'm doing the lettering. Like, I know you have the different yeah. letters, but like colorists. Yeah, uh, the colorist is colors. from, I'm going to say Argentina because I don't know exactly, <laughs> but uh, his name is uh, Federico Taibo. Uh, and uh, yeah, he's extremely, extremely gifted. And, and Matt Martin from the States, so uh, from uh, Great Britain. So being the Winnipeg Creators panel, I couldn't bring <laughs> right, <laughs> that's right, that's right here. Yeah. Show notes and then letters as well. Have you always done your own letters on projects? Yeah, I learned. I was doing something for. Uh, it was called Blue Water back then. Uh, oh, was, uh, we could tell you a uh, tale. Yeah, yeah. It was a Sherlock Holmes story, and uh, the letter uh, that was on there, I think, bowed out in the second or third episode, uh, issue or something like that. So I quickly studied and learned it, and then everything I've done in the last 10, 15 years, I've done myself just because I can write. Then when the art comes in, I can put it in there and. A, I can edit if I didn't, don't like what I wrote before, or B, if there's not enough room or whatever, I can edit that way for uh, for luck too. So, Jonathan never asks for changes. Lyndon actually, yeah, <laughs> actually, didn't you do? A, you learned because Lyndon is a writer of his own comics uh, as well. Uh, and didn't you similarly learn lettering and kind of initially in that same way? Yeah, one of the first things that uh, anyone in the online comic space will tell you is don't do your own letters. But um, <laughs> when I was making my first book. Uh, I was working with an artist, Stephen Call, and as we writers know, there's so much work that goes into doing, just in terms of pure man, man hours, in terms of making art pages, that when I was finished the writing, this, writing of the script and Stephen was working, it felt like I wasn't really doing anything anymore. And uh, wanting to, I wanted to contribute more, so I started to learn how to letter. And so with that book, because we were publishing it ourselves, I think I was lucky enough to have been able to re-letter that entire book, you know, three or four times as I learned how to make uh, how to make the book look better and how I, as I grew as a letterer. So that's exactly what I did. And 
I was about to pitch Ken on if he needed a letter at the end of this panel, but I guess I'm kind of out of luck on that now. Yeah. Awesome. Um, I want to just give each of you a chance then to pitch the story to those in attendance and listening online. As well. Oh yeah, let's make the writers do it. I'm just going to watch. And I don't want to do this. Yeah. So we'll give uh, Jonathan some time to prepare and uh, make him go first. Well. The Eye Collector is a surreal horror that, you know, it really is, I think, in the spirit of old heavy metal. Like, uh, I, I grew up reading heavy metal and just being excited about some of the stranger stories you'd see, like, you know, Jodorowsky uh, and Mobius together, or Jodorowsky and anyone, really. <laughs> like, it's always, like, the most deranged, you know, uh, incredible thing. They always seem to team uh, him, in particular, up with uh, just incredible artists. Um, and even if I couldn't fully follow the story, uh, because it was so surrealistic often in, in this development, it, it was always something I'd never seen before. And I found like Heavy Metal just had that vibe, especially at the time, like, you know, like I grew up kind of reading in the 90s, but I was reading back issues and stuff, right? So, you know, it just had that, you know, level of kind of danger and excitement. Uh, and I really wanted to do a story that had that same surreality and that same kind of uh, more of a horror vibe than Heavy Metal had, and you know, there's not really any kind of, um, it's not really violence or gore in the Eye Collector. Uh, it's just sort of more disturbing, you know, creepy, cosmic kind of. Yeah, we kind of have a mandate that you know something really bad is about to happen, and then the page turns. So it's happening. Yeah. You're, if you're imagining it, it's your fault. But what it is fundamentally is the, the eye collector's this monstrosity who's sort of a cosmic, you know, creature. Um, he's uh, in, in some respects a parasite on dreams, and he uh, uh, is sort of a combination of the boogeyman, the man on the moon, and the sandman. And what he does uh, is he gives humans what they want. You know, he feels that he's helping them. Of course, the worst thing you can do to a human is give them what they want. Um, uh, you know, he doesn't understand how humans work, and so he sort of starts to infiltrate the life of this young boy Nathan, um, who is having a you know has a very difficult um, home situation where he doesn't really feel like he has control over his environment, and he's kind of at the mercy of these people he doesn't really understand. Uh, and then the eye collector comes in and kind of amplifies everything uh, that's sort of traumatic and wrong in the, that situation. And so that's sort of you know where the story begins. And as it's been developing, um, uh, it's become more and more about you know who the side collector is and what are some of the things that uh, he's doing uh, in the world to try to kind of, in his mind, fix things. I'm sold. Uh, <laughs> Ken. Uh, hindsight is about uh, a scientist who goes back in time to try to solve the Jack the Ripper murders with all the all the theories, all the evidence that has come out over the years since it happened, uh, and so he thinks it's going to be easy. But of course, time doesn't want to give up its secrets, and he goes back and he, he runs afoul of the suspects, the police, uh, anybody that's... It feels like that time doesn't want him to uh, figure out what's going on. And in the present, there's an uh, ex-cop who's... Uh, Obsessed with learning who this guy is, he ran into him at a coin convention and got punched out by him, and he has no idea why. So he tries to investigate him in the present day, and it's basically about these two obsessed men in different time periods coming into a collision course as they both try to figure out the biggest mysteries of each of their lives. 
double soul, right? I'm sure that everyone's feeling that way. Wow, gentlemen. I mean, both of those. When, when I think of heavy metal and the stories I read, uh, you know, I, I have to admit to some of the content. It was sort of a uh, tucked in between um, other books on my shelf as a kid. But That's I, right. Yeah. I managed to score some home because yeah. obviously there's some uh, content that. Uh, the first stack, the first stack of heavy metal that I ever got, was from a uh, some older cousins. They're like, "Here's some comics for you. We know you like comics, little Gregory. Here are some Savage Sword of Conan, and here are some heavy metals. And put them in this bag and don't let your mom see them." <laughs> and uh, it really was. You know, it's the thing about art is that the salacious nature of, say, a certain kind of. Um, presented story you're able to revisit it in print again and see it for its craft after the shock or subsides and so even though you might look through early issues of heavy metal and be like oh wow it's a lot of skin in there or oh it, you know they're leaning towards a certain audience when you go back and you look at how those images are rendered and the actual thousands of hours it took to create those pages and you realize that these are not frivolous pursuits, right? In the modern age of scrolling um, human forms that you can look at all day long if you want, the idea that you could dedicate two or three days of your life to rendering just that skin pigment or just that tone or just that position, it's, its you know, it was for me as a, as a young artist just astounding. It had never occurred to me that a person could work that hard to draw something you'd only look at for two seconds before you turn the page. It also was, you know, in the early days of heavy metal, that was more of a subcultural norm uh, yeah. than it is now, you know, and even heavy metal like, has been actually criticized lately for putting, like, more clothes on Tarna. I know. <laughs> you know, giving her armor <laughs> and things like this. Uh, we just, you know, so, it, but, you know, that, in many respects, like, what was kind of shocking about heavy metal in the early days um, and what kind of gave it that subcultural dangerous edge. Like, it isn't really as, uh, you know, frankly shocking anymore and, you know, less of a just general concern of the subcultures. Um, what I what has really held, though, is the, um, uh, the continued interest in horror and fantasy and science fiction that has kind of a more experimental edge to it. I feel like that's sort of, you know, uh, become like the enduring legacy of... Uh, of it, uh, and so where I think you know we kind of fit in it more, uh, because really if you look at the eye collector, there's nothing in it that makes it similar to early heavy metal. But the vibe of the story and like the um, the kind of you know that 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 surrealistic yeah the soul the surrealistic like art style um, it does have like shades of you know. Mobius in many respects, even well, though it doesn't usually look the same. It's sort of an incubating space that's safe from remix or remake culture. Like you're not constantly seeing in new issues of heavy metal a reboot of the last story yeah. that you read uh, just a few months ago, right? They're presenting new stories all the time and new ideas, and you know it's that thing that you know I think is allowed to endure. Uh, how we got involved, I, I'm not sure, but. Uh, yeah. Well, both um, synopses, I guess, the synopses sound perfect for heavy metal. I mean, they've obviously picked perfect people to have the virus line. Now, I think, Donovan, you should pitch them Space Big Hamadeus. No, no, no. Or, I mean, I'd love to, trust me, I would love to pitch the heavy metal. Uh, 
that is not, well, I can make it though. Now, he's just being a low-key moderator, but Donovan is a, a pretty powerful comics maker in his own right here. Go on. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I collector, I know I flipped through and was immediately terrified of the book. Um, I scare easily though, so go check it out yourself. But it's at your booth, it's at Jonathan, Gregory, you're both. Well, Lynn and Jamie are in your own booth as well. I do, have my, I do have my own booth, but we do not have copies of the iCollector okay. at it. Well, you could He's got his own comics there. Yeah. How dare he? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're at booth 2731. Uh, and if. People know where that is. You know, you know, everyone knows where that is, of yeah. course. Right? You, know, you can't miss the big iCollector poster. Um, and the other thing I'll just quickly mention as you know, we're kind of talking about our booths and whatnot is uh, the other thing that we're doing is I'm taking the same creative team and doing a Kickstarter for a new uh, project, which is a bit more uh, extremely horror-oriented, uh, called She-Wolf. And if you check that Kickstarter at shewolf.ca, do come by the booth and let me know if you back it, because I'll give you a free copy of the iCollector. Dun, dun, dun. And uh, available online? I collected from Heavy Yeah, the first five issues are available. Yeah, the first five issues are available online. We've got extra issues that are con exclusive at our booth right now uh, that won't be out really for another eight months or so, it sounds like. If you want to skip the line, you can come but right to us. But you can get, you know, issues direct from, uh, we can, we've got print issues, uh, Heavy Metal has print issues online, there's digital issues online. And, hey, it's going to, they've just signed a co-publishing deal with uh, this company called Whatnot, and so they're going to uh, be soliciting the book later um, in 2023. They're going to relaunch it and start soliciting it through Diamond and comic stores and so on, but it is available Yeah. Uh, right now early. And Ken, where can we get your work? Uh, hindsight, uh, soon will be on the Heavy Metal website. It was on there, then they redid their website, and then it got booted off, and now they're putting it back on the first five issues, and then the sixth issue is coming up really soon. Excellent. Yeah. Ken, I do have a question, a craft question for you. Sorry. Yeah, I'm fascinated with historical fiction, mm-hmm. uh, creating a historical fiction, especially in the realm of comics. How much research do you do into the into all of the information of the Jack the Ripper murders that you're incorporating? A lot. Sub question: Have you solved the murders? Yes. <laughs> yes. Like, like Alan Moore, <laughs> you solved them. Uh, a lot, but mostly because I've been infatuated with it my whole life. Okay. The Jack the Ripper murders, I have a Victorian mm-hmm. mystery and, and gothic and all that. Mm-hmm. Just fascinated with it. And, uh, I've been fascinated with that since uh, there was a 1988 uh, miniseries with Michael Caine about it, and uh, ever since that I've just I don't know. I think I have like no. 10 books on the subject. And when I, when I was writing this, anything, I had this massive chart. And then any time I knew where I was in the timeline with him, I'd be looking at the, the How, detective one, the, what happened, the, the, all the people he interviewed, the witnesses. Yeah. And, and so, so I make sure I had everything lined up. So right. how do you know when to deviate from it? Uh, the story, the story, and the characters tell you pretty much. Uh, it's the book isn't about the Jack the Ripper murders. No, of course. It's about the guy yeah. who's investigating in, in his his mm. problems, and uh, and so basically he's going on a path, and then how, and of course the uh, uh, Jack the Ripper murders happen in a timeline. So if he's at this point in his development, then he has to be at this point in the murder. So. It's, I mean, I'm not going day by day, so I'm of course. like, okay, this is day, and then he's one week later, this mm. happens because it lines up with that, and then it lines up with his character. Okay. Yeah. 
And do you think Alan Moore was right? Did he solve the Jack the Ripper murders? Uh, I like what he had, but probably, probably not. I mean, it's probably a no-name guy. That knows so if you're doing a pull quote, um, make sure it has Ken's yeah. name and it just Alan says, Moore Alan Moore was wrong. Was wrong. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah, flipping the double birds. Yeah. You'll get your you'll get your internet points if you do that. If we will, yeah, yeah. we will. Yeah, no, don't mess with him. He's a wizard. He's um, a wizard. That's actually literally true. Yeah. All right, opening up for other questions as well. Yeah, if there are any questions in the crowd, you can uh, shout them out or you can raise your hand, and we'll restate the question as best we hear it, so everyone else can hear it as well. Yes. Um, I like. Um, I think his name was Crumb. He wrote like made a comic of the book of Genesis. And my question is like, he took the book of Genesis. He didn't write, write anything. He just took the exact words. He took the whole book and made it into a comic. And I read the book of Genesis. I don't know, 20 times, 30 times. But I found that reading his version and his theories at the end really helped me understand things that I'd never thought of. But I've noticed that it's really hard in the comic. You'd think it'd be easy to like find a Shakespeare play like The Tempest or something and find a word to word comic book. Like if I don't have comic drawing skills, but if, if it was me, they're like, I wouldn't create something. Uh, I'd just take one of these plays or one of these classic works to be the first person. Why isn't anyone doing that? That's my question. Oh, okay. So I'm going to, first, I'm going to frame your question for the, I'm going to like compress it and then ask you if I sort of got the spirit of it. Okay. okay. So, um, what is the magic of comics that means it's difficult to put other media into it and it come out intact? Right? But Crumb did that. Crumb was able to do yeah, that. Yeah, why don't you did see he? more straightforward adaptations yeah. of uh, like, like older works? You do see them sometimes. Like Gregory lent me a little while ago a um, uh, adaptation that I forget who did it, but it was At the Mountains of Madness oh, by H.P. Lovecraft. Um, so it was pretty straightforward. Like it was pretty much had followed Lovecraft, although it, he had, of course, yeah, readjusted the language and made it kind of work more for comics. Um, I suspect it's a formal, like the way, when I teach writing, uh, I teach fundamentally that there's like four types of conflict that you have in stories. And each of them lends itself best to a particular medium. So of course you can do any type of conflict in any medium, but like it's, it's generally true that if you're writing a prose fiction, what works best are characters that have internal conflicts as the overriding uh, force. Um, if you're writing a play, uh, what works best is if social conflicts uh, between characters are the overriding uh, story force. If you're writing a movie, uh, external conflicts tend to work best in that medium as the overriding you know, story narrative force. And in comics, my belief is that um, the formal conflicts work best, like where you're literally like big versus small, red versus black, white versus you know blue. Like it sounds ridiculous to state them that way, but I think really that medium uh, lends itself best to conflicts between sort of visual states. And for just the basic reasons that the mediums tend to inherently prioritize certain types of narrative uh, conflict, it's hard to move one into the other. You can do it, but you typically have to restructure the thing fundamentally in terms of the conflict that drives the story, um, uh, or it doesn't come off well. So that'd be my kind of answer. I don't know if it's the right answer, but that's what if you're of... looking for ones that are done like that, yeah, you have to go back a bit. In the 80s, there's a bunch of uh, graphic novels that were the uh, Shakespeare plays. 
Yeah, you're really right. nicely done. Uh, of course, they're, the entire play is not in there, but it's it's edited. It's got a good chunk of it, and those are pretty nice. And then there was a series that was in the '60s, '70s, I think, rebooted in the '80s for a while. The '90s uh, that was called Classics Illustrated, and they did all different types of work from uh, from Shakespeare plays to novels like uh, Three Musketeers and stuff like that. And, and they, they basically distilled it very small down because those comic books are only 22 pages, so you can't get. The, the book, but uh, it, it, it does a pretty good job of keeping the story in there. So if you're interested in that. And since you're expanding space for time, what often is a caution is someone will bring me a short story and say, I think this would make a great graphic novel. And then three pages into their short story, you realize, well, that would be 220 pages of illustration. If every verb, right, needs to be portrayed, right, uh, one character can perform one verb per panel of a story in comics. So not every story lends itself so clearly to a direct adaptation. If you have a lot of, frankly, verb forms in your story, you're going to need more pictures to show each of those steps. And so you have this massive accordion accordion sort of file that happens where the story decompresses in a way that's not useful to the storytelling process, right? The only other thing I would add to that is I'm not, an, I'm not an artist, so I will let Gregory correct me if I am incorrect, um, but if I had the power to illustrate whatever I wanted, I'm not sure that I would want to use the limited time I have to illustrate something that already exists. Uh, well, I think that's a good answer. But now you can just use AI. You have all the time in the world. That's true. Yeah, yeah I mean, you can just make AI adaptation comics now. Yeah, yeah for whatever reason it does. In fact, the first imprint uh, comic, the first AI comic listed in previews is a direct adaptation of C.S. Lewis essay that they fed into a robot and then the robot illustrated it. Well, it's not, you know, it didn't actually illustrate it, but it rendered out illustrations based on the essay. So you might be on to something. But I hope you aren't. <laughs> it's like not only just, um, I'm sorry, I'm running this from my head, but it's like, it doesn't have to just be enjoyable. It's, I guess my point was, it helped me learn. Like, the book of Genesis isn't like an awesome storybook. There's literally chapters of like 100 people, just names. It's like Jodab begot Methuselah, yeah. Methuselah begot Enoch. And then he just draws little faces. So it's like, you guys have this incredible, you can do calculus handbooks. You can, it doesn't have to. Like, Why is it not more? What's enjoyable? Yeah. You guys could be incredible teachers and instead of vampires, zombies, supermen. And I know there's lots of clues mm -hmm. out there. There are people, if you look, yeah, every Shakespeare found, every Shakespeare looked for, adaptation. Well, I try. That's teaching, though. I was going to say, that's teaching, that's what teaching is for. But I try to do a little inside outside in my own work. So for every big monster fighting book I do, I'll do a book like Medicine, which is a, a graphic novel about the real emotional cost of a life in medicine. Uh, for every um, uh, superhero book I do, I did a book like Will I See, which is uh, based on lived experiences. And it's a story that educates about the, you know, horrific tragedies surrounding missing and murdered indigenous women and children. So you can, in your career, lend yourself to teaching if you so choose, and you know that's your choice, but not your obligation. I think the, the real answer in some ways to your question, why doesn't you know, the teaching industry use comics more, uh, I suspect it has to do with how you really do have a industrial age industry in many respects, you know, that is 
very much still structured around training people to be employees of factories. But all the factories are in China now. Uh, and so there's a way in which it hasn't really caught up to the information age, and it hasn't in some ways caught up to more modern teaching methods that prioritize uh, different learning styles. Like most uh, teaching uh, lesson plan, like, like most of the, the syllabus in many respects, I think is still geared towards audiovisual learners like myself. Who are the not who are the minority among learners, um, and so I think you know you'll start to see I think more of that as the you know curriculum expands, and I think you're already seeing some of it to some degree. But uh, I think it in some ways the answer is less to do with the comics industry and more with like just how the the teaching industry works. Any other questions? <laughs> Oh, that is a good question. Wow. Donovan is like nervous because he's not sure how he'd answer it either. No, no, I see the exit. He's got a clear line. Okay, so the question is because art takes so, there's so much labor in getting a page of art, uh, what's the important part to get right? I think it, you have to separate the answer into am I writing a story myself and illustrating it or am I collaborating with a group of people to present an idea that we've agreed upon? So in the, in the instance of it's my idea and I'm going to illustrate it, I think the most important thing to get right is to know what your story is really about from the very beginning. And this can be as simple as writing a sentence like this story is really about the unrequited love between me and my mother, right? Whatever that sentence is. And then ask yourself every time you're finishing a page, does this page strengthen that idea or does it weaken it? And if you know that, you can evaluate whether your own story is being served by these images, right? Know what it's really about deep down. Yes, there's a plot. Someone has to do something. Someone has to go somewhere. But ask yourself if you have this other thing. When working with collaborators, though, I think the most important thing is to know what we call the beat or the essential element of the page, where everyone just agrees that by the end of page six, right, that little boy has to have been eaten by the monster. Right, And then you work backwards, like, okay, well, if page six uh, is a page turn, then we're going to show his bones, right? So what happens before that and what happens before that? And how do you keep the page turns turning in such a way that the plot is served by the very mechanics of the story itself? I, I would say, though, even as, as a writer, like even more important than that in some ways uh, is how do you want the reader to feel on that page? Uh, you know, and whatever you can have to do to get to that place. Like for me as a writer, my obsession is I want to engineer and manipulate the reader's emotional journey through the pages. And so to me, like when I, cause I started in prose and poetry and you know, uh, uh, even film writing and other things, uh, moving to comics, the thing that I really had to learn, cause I got just my first comics, the first comic I ever wrote. And I think the reason that I was able to kind of come into it strong <laughs> was not because I'm so great as a writer, but because I was paying attention to what Gregory and Justin and other people around me were doing. And I, what I noticed was there's certain things in the medium that you can use to control how the audience moves through it. So just learning simple things like, you know, if you want to surprise people, it has to be on an even page. Right, you put a cliffhanger, you know, on you, you put the um, 
at the last panel of each page, you want to have a question that the reader wants answered. You know, like just simple things that kind of move the reader through emotionally, or even just in terms of their desire to turn the page. Like to me, like engineering the desire to turn the page is the the essential. Um, and if you're new to the effort of making things, make short stories and finish them. I think that's the other like thing to get right. Everyone can start strong and everyone can be excited at the beginning, but you have to get all the way to the end of the story and finish it so you know what it is. And so the easiest way to do that is claw back your expectation and say, okay, can I tell a compelling story in five pages, in three pages, in one page? Steve Ditko has a great collection of one, two, and three page stories. Uh, where he would be offered, well, offered, mandated. Uh, the artist is three pages short in this issue of whatever comic we're doing. By tomorrow morning, you have to give us a three-page story. Tomorrow morning, you have to give us a one-page story. He would never know how long it would be, and he would just have to write short, compelling, page-turning stories that didn't feel like they were add-ons. And but, that's a pra more practical, too. Cause yeah. you got, if you're paying someone, it's your first time out, and you want to pay for art and uh, you want to pay for coloring and lettering, stuff like that. Doing it smaller, you can pay someone and get it done. And people, the publishers, stuff like that, if you want them to read something, you give them an eight-page comic, there's a better chance they're going to read it begin to end than if you give them a, a graphic novel you've done and they're like, I don't have time for this, and put it yeah. down. So. Publishers will read three pages of a terrible uh, story that has potential from a person who's excited about joining the medium, and they will give you proper feedback on a three-page story, but if you hand them a 200-page story, they will not read it. Yeah, even me, like, I came out of the gate with, I'm gonna do a 12-issue comic, right? It's gonna be two, six-issue stories, but even that, like, I really had to sit down and go, okay, can I get the whole idea across in six pages, and just, you know, almost make a six-page short story? that uh, you know, wasn't really complete, but kind of felt like, here's the whole idea. That's our five minute warning, I believe. Yeah, right next to you. Um, when did you guys realize that, like, talking about big news and comments these kids and stuff, when did you realize that you actually wanted to go into it? And how did you get into it? I, I, yes, you may, but then I also know the exact moment in the time. As do I. Yes, yeah. I can tell you the date. Okay, but we only have three minutes, so we gotta be quick. Real quick. We gotta be quick. I, I was in law school. It wasn't fun. <laughs> I wanted to do something that was fun. Okay, go. Uh, I was eight years old. I was in the barber shop, and a stack of coverless comics that the barber gave me when my dad was getting his beard trimmed. I've never looked back. May 19th, 1983. <laughs> uh, I went to... Uh, uh, a drugstore and my uh, there used to have these things called spinner racks that had the comics on them and I saw a comic book there and I asked my mom for it she said no I had my allowance though and I bought it it was Batman the Outsiders number one oh. I read it back to front 7,000 times learned all the credits and everything like that and from the day oh, I bought that's it that's Halo and Katana and all those right. great oh what's from the... that point on that was the one thing I wanted to do I always wanted to be a writer but that was the main kind of writer I wanted to be I was kind of similar. I, my deal with my mother was that if we went to church, then we had stopped at the comic store on the way, like the grocery store, the drugstore, and I could get to buy one comic. And I, one, they just have random comics there because there's a small town. And they happened to have the reprinting of Sandman number six there once. And I picked up Sandman number six, which if you know that comic, it is the Doctor Destiny in the Diner. Sandman doesn't even appear until the last panel. It's just this nightmare of like these people being just mercilessly slaughtered one by one by having their minds hijacked in this diner. 
then at the end, when it's too late and they're all dead, the Sandman shows up and he's like, oh, what's going on? I was like, I've never seen anything like it before. And I, I haven't even really seen, <laughs> I feel like that, you know, just it just blew my mind. I was like, oh my God, I go, is this what you can do in comics? Like I'd never seen anything like it. And uh, so, you know, it took me a while to kind of come around and actually try it myself, but that was really like a moment for me. This is fun, Ken. Yes. Yes, you absolutely. Spider Woman number one. This, <gasps> this is going to come wrong in the wrong context. Backseat of a 1978 Olds with Love Oh, no. This is how all good love stories You and a copy of Spider, Spider Woman, Woman number, number one. one. <laughs> in the dark. <laughs> you know what? I think I'm done. So, uh, and my uh, mom was driving me home from my grandmother's, uh, picked me up late, had that comic found on the bottom of the floor, and with each passing streetlight, I had <gasps> a second and a half to get a glimpse of that panel and then darkness. And just that repetition of the strobe. Yeah, that's a great story. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I just, I, it was, I've never been so frustrated by darkness in my life. So, it, it was great. That hooked me, and uh, yeah. Amazing. Great stories. That was fantastic. All right. Fun. And great question. Uh, 358. Uh, do we need two minutes to exit, or are we good for any other closing remarks? Let's go there, because I think we've had some questions. Closing remarks. Anyone uh, yeah. want a final pitch on your yeah. book, or what else? How dare you? This, answer sure. that question. We just talked about other things we're doing. Uh, yeah, yeah, please. Uh, last year, I wrote a, a movie, a feature film, and it came out. It's called The Return, and you can watch it on demand. It stars Richard Harmon from CW's The 100. Uh, I'm currently working on a web series for Moonrise Productions in Ottawa, so I hope that they're going to shoot that next summer. Uh, yeah, I'm writing a couple other uh, short comic books and stuff like that. I'm doing a Kickstarter for SheWolf, uh, SheWolf.ca, and uh, again, if you go check it out, Kickstarter, come to my booth, I'll give you a free comic. But otherwise, you know, even past the con, if you're listening to this later, SheWolf.ca. Um, come stop by Stephen Colonize booth upstairs at the Infinite Studio booth. We'll talk to you about our new book coming out with SourcePoint Press next year, There Was Another Life. Uh, we have the first issue with uh, an exclusive cover. Um, make comics. Uh, if you want to track me down, you can find either a Cold War psychic espionage story set in an alternate history, uh, 1950s, where all the money that was spent on atomic research was spent on psychic research instead. Or um, you can come and find the Moon Patrol, which is uh, about haunted robots fighting monsters on the moon. Man, you know, some days you wake up and think, dang, I'm a creative fella. You don't think that. You never I think that. I put to shame getting these four people here. It's fantastic. Uh, please go to the booths upstairs. Um, I guess, Kenner, do you have a booth? No, no, supply chain issues. I couldn't get it in Yeah, that one. <laughs> and a round of applause to you guys. Thanks for coming to see us. All of you. Yeah.